The Mythology of Summer Skies Two planets hover near our horizon as Earth tips toward July sun. Bright Venus, easily seen, rises from beyond the sun, like the love she symbolizes, bright and visible. Her opposite, Mars, red, warlike planet, lingering, soon to be left behind until the return later in the year. The moon keeps them company, and later in the darkness, so does Saturn, god of seeds and plenty, with his mighty son, Jupiter. What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk. Bench Talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the The week week in in science. science. Mythology of Summer Skies was written and read by Dr. Leslie Moise, author, poet, and professor. This is just another addition to a long line of poetic contributions Leslie's made for this show, Bench Talk the Week in Science. And if you want to know more about Leslie Moise, including her upcoming book, Under the Pomegranate Tree, just go to pearlsong.com slash under the pomegranate tree. Thank you, Leslie. Now, listen up if you want to know where to look in the night sky this month for these same four planets, Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter. It's Professor Scott Miller, resident astronomer at Maysville Community and Technical College. Take it away, Scott. Summer observing in the night sky has one real drawback. It is quite late before it gets dark. In early July, we are still close to the first day of summer back in June, corresponding to the longest amount of daylight. The northern hemisphere is tipped more in the direction of the sun in the daytime at this time of year. Nice for warming up the weather, but definitely cuts down the number of dark hours. So, waiting until evening twilight comes around, I begin my journey outdoors. Usually, when I start my tour of the twilight sky, it is because I am looking for planets. Often, some of the brighter ones show up before it gets dark. I start in the western sky. There, a bright point of light catches my eyes. That is the planet Venus. Venus has been trying to insinuate itself into the evening sky for about a month or so. Being the brightest of the naked eye planets, it can often be spotted before darkness comes either in the eastern sky before the sun rises, or, as of now, in the western sky shortly after sunset. Venus has started its journey out from behind the sun from our perspective. If you imagine looking down on the solar system, Earth would be seen, for example, at the 6 o'clock position, and Venus would be about the 9.30 position. Because of the tilt of Earth on its axis at this time of the year, this is not going to be a long evening appearance, 
nor is Venus going to be very far from the western horizon. In the summer, we in the northern hemisphere are tilted in such a way that our view is above the plane of the solar system in the evening, so any planets visible tend to stay closer to the horizon. In the case of Venus during this appearance in the west, it may be gone from our skies before the end of August. Still, there may be some interesting things to see that involve Venus this month. For example, Venus and Mars are near each other in the western sky, from our perspective, of course. As darkness comes over the next week or two-week period of time, Venus may be of help finding the much dimmer Mars. The moon will pass by the two the nights of July 11th and 12th. Mars is all but gone from the evening skies. It has been lingering there for some time. But our faster orbit around the sun means we are definitely leaving it behind. So we can pretty much say adios to Mars until it reasserts itself in the morning skies by the end of the year. As there are no other obvious planets to hunt for and darkness has by this time fallen, it is possible to see what constellations might be visible. Summer skies do have some easy to spot. If I turn to look to the south, a long S-shaped pattern of stars can be seen above the southern horizon. This is Scorpius the Scorpion. The reddish-colored star almost due south in our early evening skies is Antares. It marks the heart of the Scorpion. Just before are three stars, one above the other, marking the face and beginning of the pincer-like claws. These are made up from some of the dimmer stars on either side and beyond the face. Finally, south of Antares is a long curve of stars ending with two nearly side by side. This would be the body, long whip-like tail of the scorpion and a stinger represented by those last two stars. Just beyond the tail of the scorpion is the constellation called Sagittarius the Archer. Now imagining this group of stars as an archer can be a bit of a challenge but the brighter stars of the constellation form a pattern somewhat like a teapot. Four of the stars form a flattened rhombus. Think of a rectangle that is shorter along one edge and longer along the opposite edge, which marks the handle of the teapot. To the right of these are three stars forming a small right triangle of sorts, which becomes the spout. The bowl of the teapot is thus the area between these two and above the bowl is a single star that helps form the lid of the teapot. If your skies are dark enough, rising out of the spout you can see a hazy patch. That would be steam rising out of the spout, but also marks part of the Milky Way, which can be seen stretching across the eastern sky toward the W-shaped pattern of stars called Cassiopeia above the northeastern horizon. The part of the Milky Way near the spout of the teapot is the direction of the center of our galaxy. Some 26,000 light-years away from us in that direction is a monster, a supermassive black hole with a mass of about 2.6 million times the mass of the Sun, located at the center of our galaxy. Fortunately, at 26,000 light-years, its gravitational pull is so weak as to not to be a bother to us. We just keep orbiting around with all the other stars of the galaxy, just like the planets orbit the Sun. As the Milky Way stretches from Sagittarius over toward Cassiopeia, it passes through three stars marking a near isosceles triangle. This is the Summer Triangle, made of the three stars from three different constellations. Closest to the top of the sky is Vega, in the constellation Lyra the Harp. East is Deneb in Cygnus the Swan, 
and the southernmost of the three is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. A good star map will show off each constellation, and I will say more about them in a future episode. I would be remiss if I did not mention the opportunity to see one more planet, though to see it may require sitting out a bit later in the evening. Rising in the southeastern sky around 10 o'clock or so is the planet Saturn. Now, unless you have an absolutely flat eastern horizon, it might be better to give it an hour or so to get farther up in the sky. But the warm days of summer do not necessarily chase us indoors, especially on vacation or on the weekends. So with some patience, a third planet might be added to the collection. And as a further tease, about an hour after Saturn clears the horizon, Jupiter will be located there, about the same place where Saturn first appears. So for the really dedicated, a fourth planet could be in the collection. But if you're not into such late night viewing, give each of these a month or so and they will be better placed earlier in the evening sky. Happy observing. That was Scott Miller, professor of physics and astronomy at the Maysville Community and Technical College here in Kentucky. Thanks a lot, Scott. Now let's spend the rest of the show with some science news on the fly. For instance, Scott was just talking about the constellations and asterisms that we can see in the night sky. It turns out that the patterns of stars that people can see in one place on Earth are often not that dramatically different than the patterns seen by other peoples living on other parts of the planet. But of course, the stars available to the northern hemisphere are not the same as the stars you can see in the southern hemisphere. But as long as you can see them, I guess the stellar shapes that we see don't drastically change their orientation in regards to us. And I guess it's because the stars that make up the constellations and asterisms that Scott's been talking about They're so very, very far away from Earth that you can move around Earth a little bit and they don't change their orientation that much. But when it comes to detecting specific star patterns, so we're talking like the mythological characters of the constellations, for instance, the astrological characters from mythology like Taurus and Leo and Capricorn, there appears to be something that humans all have in common when it comes to recognizing these specific patterns that we see in the points of light. Well, some researchers at University of Pennsylvania recently reported on some work they did on this topic. And what they discovered was that there were three factors that explain how people see patterns in the stars. It's the brightness of the star It's the distances of the stars from each other, and it's the way our eyes move. Apparently, our eyes move in discrete jumps. They shift from one point of interest to another point of interest in such a way that they can recognize specific patterns. And no matter which culture on whatever part of the globe looks at the same constellation in the night sky, they basically see the same essential structure. So take the Big Dipper in the northern sky, for instance. The Big Dipper is made up of seven different stars that are recognized by people all around the world. Now, the International Astronomical Union considers the Big Dipper an asterism because it's smaller than a constellation and and the Big Dipper is actually just part of a larger structure that is a constellation. That's Ursa Major. But different cultures in the world recognize these seven 
stars. They recognize that it makes sort of this unusual shape. And although they might have different terms for it, they all seen the basic kind of shape. So in ancient Greece, the Big Dipper was thought to resemble a bear, and that's why it's still considered part of that constellation called the Ursa Major, the Big Bear. In Great Britain, though, the Big Dipper is referred to as a plow. The Germans called it a wagon. In Vietnam, it's a rudder of a boat. And in Indonesia, it's considered to be in the shape of a canoe. All these different names for the same basic shape. And these researchers are basically saying it's the way our eyes move. Other animal species navigate with the stars, but they might be looking at stars differently than we do. In fact, I ran across a review article in the January 2018 edition of Proceedings of the Royal Society B that was about how different animal species use the stars as a compass at nighttime. Migrating birds, for instance, will use stars, but also there's species of seals and moths, M-O-T-H-S, frogs and other animals that look at the stars in the sky in their own ways, and they use these stars as a way of orienting themselves. Dung beetles use the Milky Way to determine the best way to roll their big ball of dung around. But researchers don't really understand how these different species are recognizing these star patterns. They're just now beginning to understand how humans do. Now let's switch gears and talk about science policy. Well, the U.S. National Science Foundation has a lot to celebrate these days. The National Science Foundation, the NSF, is the leading independent agency of the federal government that funds non-medical but basic science and engineering research in the United States. Well, President Biden has asked Congress to boost the current $8.5 billion NSF budget by 20% in 2022. And a bipartisan majority in both the U.S. House and the Senate has embraced this idea of making the NSF the lead agency in a massive increase in federal research spending aimed at helping the United States out-innovate the rest of the world, especially China. These lawmakers even want NSF to develop a new multi-billion dollar agency to develop new technologies, like, for instance, in artificial intelligence. According to the journal Science, the House Science Committee recently voted unanimously to approve legislation that would give NSF $18 billion by 2026. $18 billion. That's up from $8.5 billion today. That's more than double in only five years. The committee's top Republican, Representative Frank Lucas of Oklahoma, otherwise a staunch fiscal conservative, gushed about, quote, preserving what makes NSF great, unquote, while giving it the resources to, quote, meet the challenges of the 21st century, unquote. With those added resources, however, comes increased scrutiny of an agency that has traditionally flown under the radar politically since it was created back in 1950. And it was back then it was just to fund academic research, pretty non-political stuff. That might change now. 
And although a rising budget, assuming Congress actually appropriates the money, might be a de facto measure of success, the NSF is going to have to show policymakers that they can manage these new initiatives like the Technology Directorate, as well as scale up existing programs. And according to Science Magazine, the NSF must align its mission with two hot-button political issues that legislators have made prerequisites for the agency's growth. First of all, there's increased research security, and secondly, greater geographic diversity in its funding patterns. Now, that first prerequisite, increased research security, has raised some eyebrows within the scientific community. Buried in this 2,400-page bill, which was approved by the Senate in June of 2021, is language about helping the U.S. compete with China. And this is drawing fire from human genome researchers. These are the folks who study human DNA. This new bill would require the NIH to develop new security protocols aim at preventing the so-called misuse of U.S.-funded genomic data by China and other nations. According to the journal Science, the provision is not based on any substantiated security risks and, quote, could slow biomedical advances and impose unintended burdens, unquote, according to the American Society of Human Genetics. They sent a letter to lawmakers on June 10th 2021 about their concern about this. These geneticists are worried that these provisions in the law could inhibit data sharing among researchers, and that's just critical for scientific advancement, and that this could make U.S. geneticists less competitive and form fewer collaborative relationships with scientists around the world. The Association of American Medical Colleges cautioned in a statement that, quote, any additional protections or restrictions should be commensurate with the actual risk, unquote. So now genetic researchers are asking that a special commission be formed consisting of both scientists and national security experts to actually study this issue in more detail. So that's what's going on in the NSF right now. Now, the other big federal agency responsible for scientific research is, of course, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. Now, the NIH is responsible for the government's support of biomedical research in the United States. And they're in the news, too, but for a different reason. In early June of 2021, a group of experts within the NIH released a report about how to enhance the way NIH-funded scientists are carrying out research using lab animals. We're talking experiments with lab mice, rats, hamsters, guinea pigs, rabbits, animals like that. Apparently, there's a problem with the repeatability of many of these animal studies. And a lot of times, potential medical treatments developed using lab animal experiments just don't pan out when they're then applied to humans. And so this panel is trying to address these problems. This new report says that biomedical researchers who use mice and other animals in studies funded by the NIH, they should be asked to adopt more rigorous methods and reporting practices. The group's recommendations take aim at studies using vertebrates and cephalopods, animals like squid and octopuses. 
They include having NIH add a page to its current 12-page grant application form that would ask researchers to describe study details, such as the number of animals they'll use and how they plan on analyzing the data. And peer reviewers with statistical expertise would then be expected to assess that plan. Now, this is a pretty big additional requirement because although it doesn't sound that big of a deal to add just one more page to the 12-page grant application form, that form still has to be filled out by the grant applicant. And I know from personal experience, because I had a NIH subgrant many years ago, it's going to end up being dozens and dozens of pages long by the time you fill it all out. But apparently the NIH thinks it's important. The report also recommends more funding for training animal researchers in the area of statistics, asking scientists to explain their choice of animal model, like why they're using mice, boosting support for research on larger animals, and encouraging researchers to record and study how factors of animal care, such as the temperatures that the animals live under, the light levels, and what sort of microbes live in their guts, because it's believed those kind of things can sway the final experimental results. And speaking of doing biomedical research on rodents, nutrition scientists met last week, it was in June 2021, to discuss possible revisions to the almost 30-year-old formulation of the diet consumed by laboratory rats and mice which are the most commonly used animals in biomedical research. It was at a session of the online American Society for Nutrition meeting that researchers described how making rodent food more nutritious and consistent could both improve the animal's health and limit possible confounding variables in experiments. In fact, a paper came out in April 2020 in a journal called Current Developments in Nutrition that described the ways that the diet fed to laboratory animals can actually influence the results of the experiments. After all, we are what we eat, right? For example, grain-based rodent diets often contain unspecified amounts of a class of a hormone-like compound called phytoestrogen and phytoestrogens can affect the onset of puberty in rodents and their risk of developing cancer. And of course, that's potentially going to obscure the impact of whatever experimental drug or toxin or nutrient that's being studied in the lab. And there's other potential confounding dietary constituents too, like arsenic and heavy metals. There could be mycotoxins in the food and these are contaminants from fungi that grow in the food. There could be bacteria, pesticides, pollutants, and there could be differences in the quantity and types of dietary fiber in the food that's fed lab animals. So basically, there's a call now to standardize the diets given to lab animals and to consider how those diets could influence the data collected from those animal subjects. So this is a pretty big deal. And then there's sexual harassment in the laboratory. There was another NIH report issued this month about sexual harassment among NIH scientists. Since early 2018, 
the National Institutes of Health has received more than 300 complaints of sexual and other harassment and has removed 75 principal investigators from grants as a result of those complaints. About two-thirds of the complaints involved sexual harassment allegations. Before 2018, no principal investigator had ever been stripped of a grant for that reason. But in response to the hashtag MeTooSTEM movement, NIH has begun to encourage sexual harassment victims to file complaints. The agency's Office of Extramural Research also looks into other forms of professional misconduct, including bullying and racial discrimination. And those have also recently become a greater share of the complaints. And then there's news from Russia. Now, in the past, Russia has been a signatory to the Paris Climate Agreement. Dozens of Russian scientists have contributed to the consensus reports issued by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These IPCC consensus reports basically details the causes and the consequences of global warming. And even this month, the lower chamber of Russia's parliament passed the country's first climate bill, setting a course for carbon neutrality through both emissions reductions and limits on deforestation. Just last week, President Vladimir Putin, speaking at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, said that Russia is concerned about climate change and that any claims that it is not are, quote, nonsense, a myth, and sometimes outright distortion, unquote. But now we're getting some mixed messages from Russia. It appears that not everyone in Putin's government seems to have gotten the message. Just this May of 2021, in a document reviewed by Science Insider, the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs recommended funding studies that would allow Russia to promote alternative viewpoints on climate change. They're calling for studies that would, quote, not necessarily imply abandoning fossil fuels and limiting industrial growth, unquote. The document, signed on May 21st of 2021 by the head of the Russian Department of International Organizations, says that the United Nations and the IPC, quote, have been aggressively forcing the consensus on the causes of climate change, and that for a long time, a scientific basis for climate change has been forming that is not always favorable to Russia, unquote. And it asserts that, quote, isolated alternative research is not developed further nor discussed by the international scientific community. It's basically blocked or silenced, unquote. Because of this document, some international climate policy experts are now wondering if Russia might be looking for a way to compromise on its climate change commitments. We'll just have to keep an eye on it. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. 
Now, this show is broadcast on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.